Good afternoon and a blessed feast of St. Clair to all. Let's begin with today's gospel from Matthew chapter 18. Peter went up to Jesus and said, Lord, how often must I forgive my brother if he wrongs me? As often as seven times? Jesus answered, not seven, I tell you, but seventy-seven times. And so the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who decided to settle his accounts with his servants. When the reckoning began, they brought him a man who owed ten thousand talents, but he had no means of paying. So his master gave orders that he should be sold, together with his wife and children and all his possessions to meet the debt. At this the servant threw himself down at his master's feet. Give me time, he said, and I will pay the whole sum. And the servant's master felt so sorry for him that he let him go and cancelled the debt. Now as this servant went out, he happened to meet a fellow servant who owed him one hundred denarii. And he seized him by the throat and began to throttle him. Pay what you owe me, he said. His fellow servant fell at his feet and implored him, saying, Give me time and I will pay you. But the other would not agree. On the contrary, he had him thrown into prison till he should pay the debt. His fellow servants were deeply distressed when they saw what had happened, and they went to their master and reported the whole affair to him. Then the master sent for him. You wicked servant, he said. I cancelled all that debt of yours when you appealed to me. Were you not bound then to have pity on your fellow servant, just as I had pity on you? And in his anger the master handed him over to the torturers till he should pay all his debt. That is how my heavenly Father will deal with you unless you each forgive your brother from your heart. Jesus had now finished what he wanted to say, and he left Galilee and came into the part of Judea, which is on the far side of the Jordan. The church quite correctly proclaims that man is a mystery unto himself, and if we're mysteries to ourselves, we're definitely mysterious to others. And so if I told you that today's gospel had me thinking of Mr. T in Rocky Three, you might find that a little mysterious and raise an eyebrow. But let me unpack a little bit of the mystery. Mr. T, before his bout with Rocky, famously says, I pity the fool. And there's an old proverb that goes, Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. And today's gospel sees Jesus telling us to forgive 70 times 7. And if you do that, you're most definitely a fool in the eyes of the world, particularly a world which looks up mistakes from the past and seeks to punish people for them now, the dead as well as the living. But if you run from being foolish, you'll truly run from Christ. It's ever been so. St. Paul tells us in his first letter to the Corinthians, for the word of God is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God, for it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the cleverness of the clever I will thwart. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, 
stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Wise words in the Bible telling us to be prepared to be foolish in the eyes of the world. Something of uh, the paradox of the divine humour that is at the heart of our faith that I was speaking of yesterday is contained in this passage. St Paul sets before us a mystery that has to be inhabited really to be understood. It can't be explained properly from the outside where it's likely to just be explained away. And foolishness was on my mind as Dr. Paul Shrimpton spoke in yesterday's catechesis about St. John Henry Newman. He spoke of how Newman was one of the brightest minds of his generation, but he was considered a fool for becoming Catholic. It was a thoroughly irreputable thing to do, to join the ranks of the disrespected. And so he was cast out from many of his familial and social circles. As he said this, I thought about how much effort the church and many Catholics spend on trying to be respectable, to be a judge suitable for the highest offices. Many rejoice at the first Catholic to hold this post or that, or the second ever Catholic to be US president. But at what cost? I thought to myself, perhaps we need to learn to be disrespected again. We've been rightly disrespected for the ways that we've sinned, particularly against children and the truth. But how about we be disrespected once more for the way we keep the commands of Christ, the way we live the Beatitudes? In the medieval era, era, it was often the job of the court jester to speak the truth to the king or queen in a way in which the respected advisers could never have gotten away with. St. Francis has sometimes been called a holy fool. You don't get much more foolish in the eyes of the world than giving up a secure future to live as a beggar, and definitely not by stripping off in the town square. The apex of his conversion of life came as he prayed before a crucifix in the ruins of the church of San Damiano. Francis called a voice, Seest thou that my house is in ruins? Go and restore it for me. And at that moment the young man's eyes saw things for the first time as a mystic and a saint. G.K. Chesterton explains this vision in his beautiful biography of St. Francis. He sees things go forth from the divine as children going forth from a familiar and accepted home. He hails them with an old familiarity, that is almost an old frivolity. He calls them his brother fire and his sister water. With that dancing vision of childlike delight, Francis excitedly bore off another bale of his father's cloth, sold it together with his source into the bargain, and offered the money to the priest at San Damiano to repair the church. When the priest turned him away with his foolish money, Francis's father overtook him in a rage and dragged him before the bishop demanding that his madcap son be forced to return to his father's business. I call no one father, spoke the clown, but God. Renouncing the world in public, he kicked off his motley clothes before the bishop and marched off naked, singing like a minstrel. Francis sallied forth with his soldier spirit to do everything God wanted of him with nothing, in a merry imitation of Christ.
and we can be sure that Christ joined in the laughter at this excellent joke. And so began that famous ministry of simplicity and charity. Francis was a glad servant to the poor and sick, ever happy in poverty, and ever praising God with poetry as he roamed through God's own great substantial poem. Now before long others heard his jubilant song and saw his stunts of charity. They too sold all they had, gave to the poor and followed Francis, while Francis followed Christ, juggling his joys to bring joy to God, taking pleasure in sunsets and birds and wolves because God took pleasure in him and in all of those other things. The brothers of Francis rejoiced in everything because they had nothing and spread their charity, labor, prayers, and penance throughout the land and throughout the church, changing the Christian world dramatically. And God rewarded his good fool, his holy fool, giving him the greatest likeness as he imitated his master, imprinting in St. Francis' hands and feet the marks of divine love. And it wasn't just men who found the fool's freedom of St. Francis such a liberating vision. St. Clair, whose memory we keep today, followed Francis into a radical poverty that even, that even had popes complaining. At least the brothers of St. Francis could go out to beg, but Clare and her sisters were beggars who didn't even get to go out on the street and who would not own the roofs over their head or anything under it. And yet young women flocked to join her in this radical life it did not say the things of the world were bad, but pointed to the fact that only one thing was truly good. So often when we teach religion to our children, we seek to make the message more palatable. But perhaps this is just to justify ourselves in our mediocrity, to try and make ourselves think that if only I persuaded myself that God is not calling me out of my comfort to something more radical, then I might finally be happy that the pang of is there something more might be relieved. But perhaps we will never be comfortably happy because we were not made for comfort. And besides, our children are idealistic and they see nothing alluring in the half-heartedness. And in seeking to water down our religion to make it more palatable, instead we make it insipid. And rather than be nourished by the bread of heaven, they seek their savour elsewhere. A favourite bishop of mine once said that if you set the bar high, boys will try and jump over it. But if you set it too low, they'll try and go under it. Better then have our children aim for heaven than if you pardon the pun, settle for doing the limbo. To enter into the divine dance, we have to be prepared to leave all the things that can hold us back behind. But as Leanne Womack in a favourite song sings, if God gives you the invitation, I hope you dance. You might think I've got the best seat here right now, I don't want to give it up. But the best seat here is nothing on the best seat where he is inviting you. I hope you say yes and dance. I hope you never lose your sense of wonder You get your fill to eat but always keep that hunger May you never take one single 
breath for granted And God forbid love ever leave you empty-handed I hope you still feel small when you stand beside the ocean Sit in. 